Gresham College presents Thomas More's Magnificent Utopia by Dr Richard Sargentson. For those of us interested in Thomas More, which I take the liberty of assuming includes all of us here tonight, the end of November 2016 is a rather special date. It marks nothing less than the 500th anniversary to the week of the publication of Thomas More's Utopia. Now, though More was a Londoner, and indeed lived uh, very nearby to here, the book first appeared at Louvain from the press of the publisher Thierry Martin. And it quickly went through no fewer than five editions in as many years, which is a remarkable number when you consider that it first appeared in the first age of print. And since then, it has never ceased to engage its readers. Utopia, of course, has also given birth to an idea that is understood far beyond those who've read the book itself. The idea of utopianism. Sometimes used in praise, sometimes used in blame. The assertion of utopianism is immediately recognisable. And for all that it is sometimes a dismissive accusation, it's also a term that recognises the fundamental merit in a plan of action. But Thomas More's Utopia has given a great deal of pleasure over the years, too, for it's a genuinely funny book. Its humours survived the passing of half a millennium of time, and it's also survived translation out of its original Latin into dozens of modern languages. But Utopia's humour isn't entirely innocent, for it's also, as we'll see, a highly political book with a vision of social and political life that still, I hope, has the power to provoke as well as to delight. Yet one of the things that Utopia's less often been called by its many readers is magnificent. Indeed, from the moment that it was published to this day, some of its readers have found it a rather unattractive place. After all, the buildings it describes are all the same, and the people that they house, too, wear clothes that are simple and identical. Moreover, even the author himself, at the end of his book, as we'll see, suggests that the place he's described is not necessarily noble or majestic. But in speaking to you today about Thomas More's remarkably long-lived book, one of the claims that I shall hope to uphold is that the island of Utopia is indeed, in its own way, a remarkably magnificent place. But let me begin by recalling certain of the more important aspects of Thomas More's book. And to do this, I want to engage in an exercise of imaginative historical reconstruction. Let's consider Utopia from the perspective of one of its very first readers. How might they 
have experienced this new publication. Let's suppose, for sake of argument, that you're a reasonably substantial figure in the city of London in 1516. Perhaps you're, the one, you're one of the married men of business to whom Thomas More's friend John Collett entrusted the oversight of the school that he founded in 1509 in the courtyard of St Paul's Cathedral. As such, you might also, well, be a member of the Mercer's Company, the foremost of the city guilds, and the body which Thomas More himself had also joined in the year of 1509. By the way, that happy conceit of a mercer in the City of London gives me an opportunity to thank Gresham College very warmly for this kind invitation to deliver this lecture, and also, of course, thereby, by extension, to thank the Mercer's Company, which, like Moore's Utopia, is still thriving at 500 years, and, although it was founded rather before then, and which, of course, also, and much more importantly, has supported Gresham College since its founding in the last years of the 16th century. Well, as a merchant and a mercer, then, you are interested in trade, and you might have money invested in sending goods between the port of London and Antwerp, say, or Florence. But you're also intellectually curious and your horizons stretch beyond the Netherlands and Italy. For very recently, you've also begun to hear curious stories about an entirely new world altogether. Moore's book, Utopia, seen here in a copy in the Cambridge University Library, which perhaps you purchased from one of the bookseller's shops in the churchyard of old St Paul's Cathedral, takes you directly into this new world. This is made clear by its title page. It is, you're told when you open it curiously, a truly golden little book, no less beneficial than entertaining, on the best state of a commonwealth and on the new island of Utopia. And its author is your acquaintance, Thomas More, not yet Sir Thomas More, known to you as an extremely sharp lawyer in his late 30s, who's already playing an important role in the governance of the City of London. You may not know that he's going to go on and become Lord Chancellor of England, let alone perhaps a saint of the Catholic Church, but he has already impressed you by his acumen and his wit, and also by his translations of the Greek satirist Lucian and his lectures at the Charterhouse on St. Augustine. Well, like many Renaissance writings, your modest new volume that you've decided to purchase is, is divided into two different books. Book one is a dialogue between three people, and the 1518 edition of the work even includes a picture of them, as well as the young boy John Clements, who doesn't figure in the dialogue. Well, you've heard of two of the people in this dialogue. One of them, of course, is Moore himself, who features as a character in his own book. Well, this isn't entirely unusual in Renaissance writings, although in the case of Utopia, it offers more special opportunities for him to exercise his very characteristic irony. 
The second character, who you may have heard of, is a man called Peter Gillies, a merchant in Antwerp, where, like Moore, he's an important figure in that city's local government. But you've never heard of the third person, who's called Raphael Hitlerday. But perhaps your son, who's a very good little humanist, a little like John Clements himself, and who's been learning the shiny new language of ancient Greek at St Paul's School, pricks up his ears here, because he tells you that the name Hithlidae sounds suspiciously like words that mean distributor of nonsense in Greek, Hithlos Dion. Well, Hithlidae, it turns out, is a traveller. And in book two of Utopia, he's got a traveller's tale to tell. But it's no ordinary story. He's got nothing at all to say about monstrous sillas, ravenous harpies, or cannibalistic lestragonians. As Moore dryly comments, you can find these things everywhere, but there's hardly anywhere that you can find well and wisely educated citizens. Yet that's exactly what Hitlerday has to talk about. And he's found them on this new island called Utopia. Hitlerday travelled to this new island with another real person, Amerigo Vespucci. Christopher Columbus never made it beyond the Caribbean, but he usually gets the credit for the European discovery of the Americas. But it is Amerigo who has the honour of giving that place its name. Vespucci was canny enough to write several books about his travels, and this is one of them, The New World of 1504. And in it, Vespucci describes four voyages that he'd made to a place that, by rights, ought not to exist. Here, after all, is the world that you grew up with, the world mapped by the Greek geographer Ptolemy, depicted here in a map from 1485. It shows the old world, though in a form very strange to us now. The holy city of Jerusalem is towards the centre, which is perhaps not an accident. Africa is present, although there's no Cape of Good Hope. The Arabian Peninsula is identifiable. But India is scarcely recognisable, not least because the island of Sri Lanka, or Taprobana as it was then known, dominates that part of the world. So perhaps it's no accident then that we're told that Hitlerday should have returned to Europe from Utopia via Taprobana. Yet by 1516, that Ptolemaic world was beginning to change. Perhaps you, as a keen book collector, own this edition of Ptolemy's Geography, which had a supplement at the back depicting the modern lands and seas that had been reported, as the book says, in our own age. And in this book, you would have found this map of a terra incognita, an unknown land, corresponding broadly, as you can see, to modern South America. Or perhaps you'd been lucky enough to see this 
extraordinary document, the world map of Martin Waldseemuller, which now survives only in a single copy owned by the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. It depicts, in 1507, for the very first time, the entire globe on a single set of printed sheets. Africa now has its cape and also an elephant, and India is now a little more, a little more, but only a little more recognisable. But the most notable addition is the continents of North and South America. The first time they've been given that name on a map. And to honour its discoverer, the modern Amerigo Vespucci now faces the ancient Claudius Ptolemy at the top of Valdemula's extraordinary map. Well, it's somewhere on this newly enlarged globe that Utopia is to be found. But where? In an apparently embarrassed letter to Peter Hillies that serves as the preface to his volume, Thomas More confesses that it never occurred to him to ask in what part of the new world Utopia is to be found. He's a little ashamed, he exclaims, not to know where the island lies about which I've written so much. Well, now, of course, we're very comfortable with the thought that it's in the nature of utopia always to be just beyond the edge of the known world. That's one reason why the genre of science fiction is one of utopia's many heirs. But the thought I'd like to emphasise at this point is that when Utopia was written, it wasn't beyond the bounds of possibility that travel beyond the confines of the known Ptolemaic world might indeed reveal a civilization which was superior to the intellectual, social and political world of Europe. Now, of course, as the boundaries of our knowledge and expectation have shrunk so very dramatically we have to extend our imagination beyond the bounds of planet Earth to imagine such a magnificent possibility. But what is this new island like? In book two of Utopia, Hithoday paints an elaborate picture of this new place. And like him, pointing to it here in this image from the 1518 frontispiece, I must now use words to describe this place to you. Hitler Day tells us, to begin with, that Utopia wasn't originally an island at all. In an unbelievable feat of civil engineering, the island was cut off from its continent by digging a channel no less than 15 miles wide. So this island, it's suggested, is a creation of artifice, not of nature. It's a product of the exercise of human will and human power. Well, on this island of Utopia, there are 54 cities. All of them, says Hithoday, without apparent irony, exactly the same. But one of them, 
by the name of Amarot is at the centre of the island, and it's that one that Hithliday describes. Amarot is surrounded by expansive and well-cultivated fields. Its rivers are bridged by stone arches. The large houses are all an impressive three storeys high, very high for that period, and constructed not of wood, but of brick and cement. They face each other across streets that are no less than 20 feet wide, a vast span by comparison with the narrow lanes of 16th century London, the same lanes, of course, that helped the Great Fire of exactly 150 years later to spread so rapidly, burning the wooden buildings of the city to the ground. And at the back of their houses, the utopians have large gardens, which they love to cultivate, and indeed even to compete with one another to render them more beautiful and more fertile. But all this civic excellence doesn't come without effort, and the utopians are nothing if not industrious. They're remarkable in that every single person on the island contributes their labour to it. All work in the fields by rotation. But every person in Utopia is also taught one or more trades, such as weaving or metalwork or carpentry. Moreover, not only men, but also, as Hitler Day is at pains to make clear, women too follow the same course of life. Even the magistrates who govern Utopia choose to work, though they don't have to. Well, the benefits of this on Hitler Day's account are clear. Because the whole population engages in useful work, they easily produce everything they need. Indeed, a surplus of everything they need. And the consequence of this is that in Utopia, ladies and gentlemen, the working day is six hours long. Well, here again, there's an extraordinary contrast between Utopia and Europe, and in particular between Utopia and the picture of Europe that is painted in Book One of Moore's Dialogue. In Utopia, I'm sorry, in Europe... According to Hitler Day, the female half of the population don't work. Then there are all the men in Europe who shirk their duties. Priests, for instance, and monks. Also noblemen and the so-called gentlemen and the retainers who attach themselves to such dignitaries. And also, of course, the sturdy beggars who feign illness as an excuse for mere idleness. But what's even worse, perhaps, is that in Europe, the work that people do do is so often useless. People waste their energy in superfluous trades, making luxuries that merely satisfy human vanity and licentiousness. The utopians, by contrast, have much better priorities. For them... The manual labour that brings us our food is simply a means to an end. 
Because everyone works, there is more free time for everyone. In fact, Hitler Day says, the foundation of their commonwealth looks towards that one goal above all, which is that so far as public necessities allow, the entirety of the citizens should be free to withdraw as much time as possible from the service of the body and devote themselves to the freedom and cultivation of the mind. In that, Hitler Day says, the utopians think the happiness of life lies. Well, as that suggests, the utopians are remarkably scholarly folk. All the children, both boys and girls, receive an education in good letters, the sort of humanistic education, in fact, perhaps, that John Collett founded St Paul's School to provide. And a few boys who've shown a special aptitude from study, for study from childhood onwards are excused from working the land and permitted to give themselves over entirely to learning. But, however, throughout their lives, a good part of the rest of the populace, both men and women, also devote their plentiful spare time to reading. And not just reading, because they also like to gain knowledge by the ear as well as the eye. And one of the many remarkable things that Hitler Day tells us about the remarkable utopian people is that they love to hear lectures. Not only the scholars who are required to attend them, but also many other people of all kinds, Hitler Day says, again, both men and women, flock to hear public lectures on whatever subject might interest them. But I'm sorry to say, ladies and gentlemen, that the utopians are made of sterner stuff than the denizens of Gresham College, because the lectures in Utopia all take place before the hours of dawn. <laughs> well, the Utopians value learning for the knowledge it brings them, and that knowledge is especially useful knowledge. They're excellent physicians, though the natural temperance of the people mean that no people needs medicine less than they do. They're excellent astronomers, and remarkably, they're able to turn their deep knowledge of the natural world towards an extraordinary feat. They are able to do nothing less than forecast the weather. <laughs> Unlike scholars of the Renaissance, though, who had to spend years learning Latin before they could hope to participate in their world of learning, the utopians pursue their own studies in their native tongue, which sounds a little like Greek. But this isn't at all to suggest that they despise ancient languages as useless, because once Hitler Day has brought from Europe a parcel of books in ancient Greek, they rapidly acquire a deep knowledge of that language too. So, in all these things, as I hope you'll agree with me, the utopians are really rather impressive. Magnificently impressive, we might even say. Well, in truth, in an age before electric light prolonged the day and when candles were expensive, 
going to bed with the sun and waking before dawn wasn't especially uncommon. But there is a different way in which the institutions of utopia were quite unlike anything Thomas More's world knew, or indeed our own. Because in utopia, there is nothing private anywhere. The doors of the utopians' houses are open to anyone who wants to enter them. The utopians eat in communal halls shared between 30 households where they take their meals in common. Extraordinarily, too, it is a capital offence to engage in private discussions about public affairs. In utopia, the business of public affairs, politics, can only properly be done in public. And most importantly, and most notoriously of all, in utopia, there is no private property. No one owns anything, and there is no money that could be used to buy things anyway. And it is this, above all, that elevates utopia far beyond any other polity, according to Raphael Hitlerday. Where you have private property, he tells the character of Thomas More at the end of book one, and money is the measure of all things, it's hardly ever possible for a commonwealth to be just or prosperous. Yes, he uses that word, prosperous. The reason, Hitler Day goes on, that Plato was the wisest of men was that he realised that the one and only path to public welfare lies through the equal allocation of goods. Nothing can be fairly and justly distributed, nor can human affairs be properly organised, unless private property is entirely abolished. And to point the message, the utopians use gold and silver for chamber pots and to make chains to shackle and to decorate the few criminals of their commonwealth. Of course, we shouldn't suppose there are very many of those criminals, and this is partly because the utopians are such well-formed citizens that we're told they need very few laws. But there's also a more profound and a logically unarguable reason why crime is rare in utopia. Hitler Day points the moral at the end of his description of the island. Indeed, he becomes quite vehement on the subject. Consider, he says, the happiness of the utopian republic, which has abolished not only money, but with it greed. What a mass of troubles was cut away with that one step. What a thicket of crimes was uprooted. Everyone knows that if money was abolished, fraud, theft, robbery, quarrels, brawls, altercations, seditions, murders, treasons, and a whole set of crimes which are avenged but not prevented by the hangman, would at once go out. 
For Hitler Day, by contrast, the various states that flourish in Europe are nothing but a conspiracy of the rich who further their own profit under the name and title of the common good. How can there be any justice, asks Hitler Day, when a nobleman, a goldsmith, or a banker, who make their living by pursuing useless activities, get to live lives of luxury and grandeur, while labourers, drivers, and farmers work so hard that even a beast of burden would scarcely endure it. It's important, though, that we take the irony here properly seriously. Moore quite deliberately set his book in Antwerp, which together with Florence and Venice and increasingly London, was one of the great commercial cities of the 16th century. And Moore's earliest readers, who wrote letters praising the book that were published with later editions of Utopia, were by and large successful professional men who realised that in enjoying Moore's book, they were also condemning themselves. Indeed, at the end of book one, the character of Thomas More himself offers a slew of arguments in defence of the absolute necessity of private property. It encourages industry, he says, and it's the only way one can hope to maintain political authority. So the point is not, I suggest, whether we or our prosperous city Mercer in 1516 find Hitler Day's ideas unrealistic. Clearly, they appeared no less unrealistic at the time Moore wrote them as they've done since. The point of the book is the challenge that these ideas threw down and continues to throw down. So let me turn now then to consider another aspect of Moore's 500-year-old challenge. Surely, such a thoughtful and well-educated people as the utopians are have carefully considered the subject that many writers in the later Middle Ages and Renaissance agreed was the most pressing and noble one of all, and the one with the most important consequences for the happiness or the misery of a population. That's to say, the subject of politics. Well, certainly they have. Utopia, after all, is a book that uses a description of an imaginary island to explore the question of, as the title suggested, what the best form of a commonwealth might be. And so here again, I need to emphasise the contrast that Moore sets up between book one and book two of his playful yet profound little volume. Book one offers a debate between the different characters of the dialogue over the nature of European politics. It raises issues like the problem that thieves pose in England, 
or the perils of participating in a royal council of the King of France. And the world that Book One describes is a world, as Hitler Day says, of miserable poverty and destitution. Book Two, by contrast, offers a portrait of a quite different kind of polity in the form of utopia. For a start, all the cities of utopia, though they are all similar, are politically all independent of one another. They all share the same utopian values, but they are not subject to a single executive authority. They're part, in other words, of a confederation of city-states. We might even call it a kind of utopian union, in which the fruits of their abundance are distributed equally among all of the members. Uh, Especially, we're told, if one city should fall on hard times. Thus, says Hitler Day, the whole island is like a single family. But these are not the most striking differences between the portrait Hitler Day paints of utopia and the criminal, violent and quarrelsome European polities that the characters debate in book one. Those European polities are all monarchies. They're governed by a single person who's inherited his position and who is guided, however imperfectly, by counsel offered by notables of various different sorts. The cities of Utopia, by contrast, are governed quite differently. Their political office is won by election, not by birth. The fundamental political unit in Utopia, then, is also its fundamental social unit, the household. And in Utopia, as in early 16th century London, a household might contain rather more than just the members of a nuclear family. It might contain, in fact, several generations and spouses. And uh, as uh, I mean, in London, there would be servants as well, although there are obviously no servants in Utopia. So we're told there are anything up to 10 or 16 members of a household in Utopia. Each group of 30 households, in turn, elects a representative who governs them, known in the utopian language as a syphogrant. There are 200 of these in each city, and they sit in a popular assembly, or, as we might think of it, a lower chamber or a house of congress. They're elected, and they change annually. Over the syphogrants, there's a higher level still of elected officials, known as tranibors. There are just 20 of these, and they sit in the Senate of each city. They are re-elected annually, but we're told they're not changed for light or casual reasons. And the highest official in Utopia is its governor, in Latin, princeps, but with the implication of principal person. He is also elected but for life, and he's only removed if he's suspected of aiming at a tyranny. Moreover, at every level, utopian politics is deliberative, with each 
element of the polity taking counsel with the levels above and below it before important political decisions are arrived at. And so on the basis of this political structure, I would go so far as to say that Thomas More's Utopia is the most thoroughly democratic polity that had ever been conceived in late medieval or Renaissance Europe. The idea that households, individual households, might be involved in taking political decisions that could affect an entire city-state would have struck most early 16th century readers, I think, as another one of Utopia's obvious absurdities. So we might then go on to ask, well, how do these political arrangements look in the light of other ones available in the Europe that more knew? Well, the states of Renaissance Europe were largely ruled by hereditary princes. But elective offices were widely available, though at a more local level. And in particular, the governance of cities was often conducted by elected officials. The city of London, for instance, was governed by a common council of a hundred or so wealthy householders. They, in turn, were subject to aldermen and to the mayor. And there are some sly jokes in Utopia that serve to compare the city of Amarot with the city of London and the river Anida, the, 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 in Greek, the waterless river that flows through the city with the river Thames. And we might also wonder whether utopian political arrangements don't look a little more like England more generally. After all, there is, as we've seen, an upper and a lower chamber and a single executive figure. But in other respects, of course, utopia is a world away from the political structures of 16th century England. There, a hereditary monarch governed by means of legislation passed by a House of Commons and a hereditary House of Lords. And although there were elections to the Commons in this period, they weren't uh, contested in the way that they are now. And uh, in the Commons then, perhaps as also now, there was no sense that members should only serve a limited term before rotating out of office. But in Utopia, of course, there is also no king. Nor is there a hereditary aristocracy. There could hardly be any of these things because hereditary office is a possession and in Utopia, no one owns anything. So by virtue of its abolition of private property then, Utopia is by necessity a republic. Election, not inheritance, is the mechanism by which political power is acquired. But this also brings up another aspect of utopian politics, which is so obviously exemplary that I hardly need to mention it. In utopia, as you would surely hope, and as Hitlerday tells us, any man who campaigns for public office is immediately disqualified for all of them. 
Well, although utopian elections have popular elements, utopia is, I think, far from that great invention of the 19th century, representative democracy. To be sure, households do elect their local representative, but they don't elect the governor, who instead is chosen by the people that the households have in turn chosen. In short, I wonder if utopia doesn't have a system of political representation that looks to me like ideas that only came to the fore uh, in the high enlightenment of the later 18th century. So the utopian system in some ways is a little reminiscent of ideas that came uh, to gather strength after the French Revolution of 1789, the idea of, as it was called, graduated promotion, whereby high political office was only available to those who had served in a lower capacity first. Alternatively, perhaps we might regard the utopian system of representation as being a little like the electoral college system that was designed by the framers of the American Constitution in 1787. In the view of the wise founders of that great republic, it was not appropriate for the people to choose their president directly. Instead, they laid down that the people should elect trusted delegates who would in turn meet together in their respective states and, by a majority vote, choose two persons who, in their view, were fit to fill the high offices of president and vice president. Well, I've offered you an account of Moore's Utopia, which stresses its excellent qualities. But our story isn't quite as straightforward, I must confess, as my argument might have suggested. Because as I began by mentioning, quite a few of Utopia's readers have not found the island a magnificent place. They worry that it's a place of conformity, of suppressed individuality, of misplaced simplicity. Remarkably, some readers have even thought that Moore's book offers nothing less than a case study in disguised tyranny. Moreover, at the end of his book, even the character of Thomas More himself objects that Utopia may not be very magnificent. His doubt comes at the very end of book two, after Raphael Hithoday has finished his insistent panegyric on Utopia and the justice that it alone embodies. Moore steps in to finish the tale and objects to the principal foundation of their whole society, their communal life, pursued without any exchange of money. This one thing completely overturns all nobility, magnificence, splendor, and majesty, which according to public opinion, are the true honours and ornaments of a commonwealth. So is utopia then ultimately a magnificent place? Well, despite Moore's ironic 
though also rather guarded objection to his own creation, I do think that we are supposed to think it is. Utopia is, after all, to remind you, magnificently populous. And then, as now, a large population was a, a mark of political success. It houses all of its numerous inhabitants, as we've seen, in buildings that were larger and more commodious than anything that early 16th century cities and even the city of London might have to offer. And indeed, Day tells us specifically at the beginning of Book 2 that Utopia's cities are all spacious and magnificent. We might add that the Utopians' churches in which they piously worship are of a magnificent size and that the Utopian people are also magnificently successful in warfare against their many jealous enemies. And for these reasons, too, the utopian polity, we're told, has lasted a magnificently long time. Of course, as Moore's doubt identifies, the utopians aren't magnificent in some more conventional ways. Their rulers don't distinguish themselves by luxurious clothes or golden chains of office, nor do they inhabit magnificent palaces from which their subjects are excluded but have to pay to maintain. But there is one last way in which, I suggest, Moore presents Utopia to us as indeed a magnificent place. It is magnificently just. No money is required there to obtain justice from the laws. Not least, of course, because there are, naturally, this being utopia, no lawyers. <laughs> no one needs to be rich to hold political office. And so it's there, and there alone, Hitlerday insists, that virtue has its reward. And so I end my lecture with thanks to you, but also by proposing one final way in which Thomas More's 500-year-old book is indeed magnificent. Though the Renaissance world from which Utopia arose has largely passed away, More's Utopia remains to this day a magnificently thought-provoking book. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.